We know this well, the, those of us who live in Abu Dhabi, that an expatriate is someone who has taken up residence in a foreign country. And living in the UAE as an expatriate is truly fascinating. Life is just so different out here. So until I moved here and learned what it was like to live in the sand, I had no idea of the thrill of driving over curbs or cliffs and driving on the sand. I didn't know about that. I also didn't know about the agony of being lost, like in Dubai. You miss an exit, and then, and then you just pray for help because your, your GPS is not going to help you. I, I didn't know what that was like. I also had no idea that I was able to use such improper English such as when you have to call your maintenance man for help. And so words coming out of my mouth like, I have problem. Too much water coming, coming. Problem, tanky. You come now. I, I, had, I never thought that I would condescend to use such poor English grammar. And, and yet, you move here, and that's communication, and it's valid. And so I think about how God condescended with us to use our human language to reveal his infinite glory. And so in a much smaller capacity, we do the same as expatriates living in Abu Dhabi. And, and the concept of home, the very word home, takes on a whole new meaning when you're an expat. Because you don't even know what home is anymore. Like, home? What is, is Texas home for me? Well, my parents still live there. The home I grew up in is no longer there. I, I don't even know what home is anymore, except I can say this. I feel most at home in Abu Dhabi. I feel most at home with the people of God, with those that are in this room right now. I mean, to me, this is home. I haven't gone to U.S. in two years. And I really haven't missed it all that much. We are going to go this summer. As the temperature rises, many of us are thinking about going home for the summer. But even then, you have to ask yourself, really, is that home anymore? If God's called you here, then maybe we should begin to rethink what home is. And quite honestly, seeing this as home is going to go a long way to being on mission for Christ here in Abu Dhabi. But life as an expatriate can be hard. I mean, objectively, and I think what makes it so hard at times is that it's unfamiliar. And so especially those of you that are newer to this region, it just looks, sounds, tastes so different. And with all of those challenges, I just want to remind you that being an expat in Abu Dhabi is a gift from God. It is truly a blessing. And not just because you have gainful employment, not just because you, you have someone that lives in your house that cleans for you if you have a live-in maid. Not just because there's a lot of luxuries that you can waste your money on in Abu Dhabi. I mean, those are definitely there. And not just because the world is accessible with a flight away. No, 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 no. All of those things to me are so peripheral. The reason why living here is a gift from God is because this is a strategic place for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The nations are here. And we have the privilege and the mission by our mass to go and glorify him by making, developing disciples. We have the privilege of being in a faith family of every tribe and nation under the sun. And the joy of loving people that aren't like us. 
It is truly a gift. And I can say one other thing about being an expatriate is that it helps us better understand the Bible. It actually does. And I'll give you an example here. This morning, we're starting a brand new preaching series in the book of 1 Peter. And if you have Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter. We'll be in the introduction this morning. The series is called Expatriate, Following Jesus in the Foreign Land. For all of us that have repented and truly trusted alone in Christ for our salvation, followers of Jesus, every one of us is an expatriate. In the ultimate spiritual sense, we're all expats because this world is not our home. Our true home is in heaven. As the people of God, we are citizens of heaven. And so this morning, as we start this new series, we're talking about how we are expatriates of heaven. Please read with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, just the first two verses as this book is introduced. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may peace and grace be multiplied to you. Powerful text. In two short verses, this is so Deep, and we will work through it together for God's glory this morning. Let me give you the primary truth, the, the main idea from this text for us this morning. It said, as the people of God, we are not home yet. So we must continue to follow Jesus in this foreign land. So what we're seeing here in this text is that we, the people of God, are not home yet. So we must continue to follow Jesus in this foreign land. We live in a world that has values, and so the values of comfort and security are the two primary idols and, and values of this world. I don't care who you are, where on this planet you're from, everyone wants comfort and security. And for most people on this planet, anything that gets in the way of your personal comfort or your personal security for most people, they want to remove that obstacle out of the way so that they can then have their own personal comforts and security. I mean, that just tends to be the way we live. And so because of our desires for our own personal gratification, our own comfort and security, there's many evils that arise from that, such as divorce or corruption or crime or out-of-control debt, or addictions. These are all symptoms. All of these examples, and we can name many more, are just symptoms of a much deeper problem. At the root, the problem is that this world is corrupted by sin, and we are no different. We, too, are corrupted by sin, and we, too, bow down at the idol of comfort and of security. And even as followers of Jesus who have been forgiven and resurrected spiritually, who have his spirit, we are not yet glorified, and so we live in this fallen world, and we who have a new nature still fight against the old nature. We still have sinful desires that would want to war against our new desires for Christ. 
And so there's this battle that begins to rage on when you come to faith in Christ, and the problem is idolatry. That is, that is the human problem for every single one of us on this planet is idolatry. And so how do you find the strength to keep fighting against our struggles and our temptations? How do you find the hope to truly keep trusting in Jesus while you wait? How do you find the courage to accomplish that task that you know that you sense God has called you to? And yet when you look at this this task that God has called you to, it's just so big. And you think, this is just too big for me, God. Can I really make an eternal difference? How do we find fulfillment? I mean, true, deep down fulfillment, when sometimes maybe your life feels so small. Maybe you're struggling with with feeling insignificant. Maybe you're struggling with finding your role here in Abu Dhabi, because for a lot of people, what they did in their home country, what their life looked like, what their career was like, and then you move here, and sometimes it doesn't always translate. And what you're doing in your career here, sometimes this isn't exactly what you want it to be. And so sometimes there's even this unsettling with, what is my role here? And what, what does life look like here as an expatriate in Abu Dhabi? And and trying to find fulfillment in the things sometimes of this world. And I remind you of the main idea from the text that we just read. Following Jesus is not easy in this broken world. But as the people of God, we're not home yet. This is not home. We must continue to follow Jesus in this foreign land with the brokenness and the uncertainty and at times of frustration. Because he alone can satisfy, and he alone is worth, and we were made for Christ. These two verses that we just read are so profound. I mean, I'm going to try to go somewhat quickly, but I'm not good at that. I'm not good at going quickly, but there's a lot in these two verses. But here's what we need to understand as we unpack this this idea that that we're not home and yet we're following Christ in this world, is that for us to be successful, for us to truly successfully follow Christ in this foreign land, you have to focus on who you are in Christ. In order to follow Jesus in this world successfully, it's all about your focus. We have to focus on who we are in Christ. It's all about our identity. It's all about when you look in the mirror and you say, well, who am I? And how you define who you are, wife, mother, husband, father, employee, provider, the popular one, the pretty one, the skinny one, the overweight one, the popular one, the not popular one. However in your mind you tend to see yourself and how you define who you are is is paramount. And so we must define who we are in Christ. Our identity must be wrapped up, rooted in who we are in Jesus. Because when we try to find our identity in anything else, it's going to let us down. And that applies to me. My identity cannot be pastor. 
Because then you know what happens? Then what happens is I will never see my wife or my children because I'm going to try to be as busy as possible, meeting with as many people as possible, and having as much time in my study, and, and neglect my family. Because if my identity is wrapped up in being super pastor to get the approval of people, then I will begin to be a terrible pastor because I'm not going to be healthy. And so finding our identity in Christ is critical. And from this text, it's brief, but it's, it's profound. There are four specific truths that we must know and believe about our identity. We must know and believe these four truths. And when we focus on the truth from God's word, what happens when our minds and our hearts are really focused on Christ and who he is and finding who we are in him, what happens is then God's spirit comes and he breathes into you. Well, what, is, what does he breathe? He breathes life and healing. And the sustaining power of the Spirit will be active in you when we focus on the truths of who Jesus is and who we are in relation to him. So of these four truths, number one from this text, number one is you have to know and believe that you are a citizen of heaven. We must not see ourselves as citizens of this world. Spiritually, ultimately, you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus, we are citizens of heaven. Let me give you just a brief context here in 1 Peter. Verse 1 says that the Spirit of God inspired Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, and so he had authority, and he's speaking the words of God here. And in verse 1, he says that he was writing to people, to believers, churches, in five particular regions. He says Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are in modern-day Turkey. So this is the Roman Empire, and he's writing them a letter to encourage them to keep following Jesus in this foreign land. Now, the, the context of 1 Peter that we'll see throughout the series is that he was writing to these, these congregations, these churches, much like ours, and they were mostly Gentile, not Jewish congregations. You're saying, well, how do you know that? How do you know that, that the original audience was primarily Gentile and not Jewish? Well, it says it throughout the whole book. And so, like, for example, in chapter 1, verse 14, we'll look at that soon. He talks to them saying about their former ignorance. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, You have feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So he's saying that formerly you were very ignorant about God. And he, and he says that you, in your futility, again, your, your poor thinking and your, your life far from God, that you inherited from your fathers this feudal thinking. And so he's describing people who didn't grow up going to church. They weren't raised in the Jewish religious environment where they were studying the Torah. They were futile. They were ignorant. They didn't know. And then in chapter 4, and there's a lot more. I'm just kind of going briefly here. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Peter reminds them that they used to live, he says, in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And he says, and the Gentiles, he says in verse 4, are surprised that you don't join them. And so these Gentiles used to hang out in these crazy parties. 
And now they've come to faith in Christ, and now they don't do that anymore. They've changed. And their friends are like, hey, why aren't you partying with us anymore? What's going on? These people didn't have Jewish backgrounds. Now, of course, it was mixed, but primarily Gentile. And so the people that were reading this letter from the Apostle Peter, the original audience, most of them were likely, we can assume, born and raised in places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and modern-day Turkey. They were born and raised there. They were, they were raised in that environment. And so if that was home to them, and they've come to faith, and now they live different, why is the Apostle Peter calling them exiles? Now, the word exile in the original, it does not mean here in chapter 1, verse 1, it doesn't mean someone that has been forced out of their home. We think of the word exile as you get exiled, as in you are forced out. That's not what the word here means. The word here means stranger or foreigner. And other translations other than the ESV do capture that. Like the word sometimes is called stranger or even aliens residing in these regions. And so what he's describing is people who are like expatriate, people who are temporarily living in a foreign land. So why does the Bible describe his original, the audience, why does he call them exiles or foreigners or strangers if they're living in their homeland? They've never left these areas. And if we apply it to us, why is it that here believers are being called strangers, sojourners, so travelers? Why, why is that language being used? And for us, we were born in this world. I mean, this is home to us. We were born in, in, you know, somewhere on, on this planet. And so how is it that believers are also being described here as foreigners or strangers to this world? The answer is in verse 1. Why, why, are, why are we foreigners? Why are we expats spiritually? Because we've been chosen by God. Because we've been chosen by him. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, elect exiles. So he says elect. And so he's calling God's people as elected strangers. So chosen strangers, chosen foreigners is the language here. So God's sovereignty is being emphasized. So he's emphasizing how God loved you. He chose you. He loved you first. He saved you. He sought you and you were lost and enjoying the things of this world. He sought you and he saved you. Or if you're like me, raised in a Christian home, he put me in a godly home where my parents told me about Jesus when I was a child. He did that for me. I didn't deserve it. He did that. I don't deserve God's mercy. And you don't either. We don't deserve his grace. But he has been so good to us to reveal himself to you and to me. And through the power of his spirit, we have been repented and entrusted in Christ. And so what makes us foreigners in this world? We belong to God's kingdom. That is what makes you and me who follow Jesus foreigners, strangers, expatriates, is that we belong to another kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so this is describing the next word here that's very interesting. He's talking about followers of Jesus who are expats of heaven because we are citizens, we're part of his kingdom. And he said he calls the people 
of the dispersion. Again, in chapter 1, verse 1. Elect exiles of the dispersion. So chosen strangers of the dispersion. So what does that word mean? Well, the word dispersion means scattered. And it was a very particular term used to describe Jews. In 722 B.C., so many years before Jesus, the Assyrian Empire in modern-day Iraq, they took the northern kingdom of Israel captives, exiles. So that was forced. And so they took them into exile into Assyria. And then the Babylonians came into power, took over, defeated the Assyrians, and then this new power, the Babylonians, 586 B.C., took the southern kingdom of Judah, exile, to Babylon. And so you might remember hearing about Daniel and his three friends that were taken to Babylon. That was, the, that was the second exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, from that point on, many of the Jews never went back to the homeland. Many of the Jews were scattered across the known world. And so the dispersion is a title that describes Jews that were living outside of the borders of Israel's land, outside of Palestine. And so the, and if you read even in the New Testament, several times there's discussion of the dispersion. And so there were still Jews centuries later that were not living in the actual homeland. And so the, that word is a distinctly Jewish term describing people that are living outside of Israel. So why would Peter call this Gentile church the dispersion, which is a distinctly Jewish word? Understand the context here. We read earlier from Jeremiah 31 in our scripture reading. Remember, in Jeremiah 31, there's this promise that one day, God's going to take all those who are scattered, and he's going to gather them together. And so in the Old Testament, there's this, this understanding that being scattered is a sign of judgment. Being dispersed is judgment. Being gathered together, where the people of God gather together, enjoying God's presence together, studying his word together, being a light to the nations together, and praising God Together is a sign of blessing. And so scattered is a sign of being judged, and gathered together is a sign of blessing from God. And so God was making promises, like in Jeremiah, 6th century B.C., that one day God's going to gather all of his people together, and they're going to enjoy his goodness. And so God is promising gathering together. And so when you think about why would Peter call Gentile Christians like you and me the dispersion? Because all of the Old Testament promises of God gathering his people together to praise him for eternity were accomplished through Jesus and seen in the church. And so you and I gathered together in the Emirates Park Zoo in a Muslim country, in Abu Dhabi, gathered around his word from every tribe and nation and tongue, enjoying the presence of our God, 
accomplishing the mission of God. This gathering right here is a direct fulfillment of all the promises given to Israel that he's going to gather his people together. And Jesus, the ultimate Israelite, the only Israelite that maintained the law, who accomplished all of the requirements, who is the recipient of all the promises. We are in Christ. We are his people, every tribe. And so Jew and Gentile now don't matter because we are one in Christ. And so what we're seeing in our lives is a fulfillment of being the one people of God who are gathered under his blessing to praise the name of our Savior, Jesus. And we've been gathered from out of the world together as citizens of heaven. And so we are strangers, but our, our citizenship is not in this world. We're just here temporarily. We have an eternal purpose. So here's why this is so significant, being a citizen of heaven. What matters to you today? Because we are a light to the nations. See, God chose Israel out of the world. He chose them to be his people, to receive his word, to have his blessings, to experience his presence, to be on mission so that other nations can see that there is God and they would then know God too. And so we're the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. We are to be a light to the nations right here in this city. We are ambassadors of the king. That's what we are. We are here. This church is a colony of heaven. That's what this is. This is an outpost of heaven. And we're at war. I was talking just last night, met as elders, and it was really great. I love being with elders. We read the word, pray for you individually. It's wonderful. And our brother Cole, our newest elder, happens to be a Black Hawk pilot here in Abu Dhabi. He's an instructor. And he was talking about how it's so hot in the helicopter because there's no air conditioner. And I was like, why don't they put an AC in the helicopter? Like, it makes sense to me. This is the UAE. There's gold everywhere. Like, just put AC in the helicopter. He was like, why would you do that? They're about to jump out of the helicopter. Well, not him, he's flying. But the other guy's in the helicopter. They're about to jump out to go to war, to fight to the death. Why would you want to be comfortable? And I thought, oh, yeah, Cole's pretty smart. Like, that makes sense. Like, don't get too comfortable. You're in a war zone. You don't need AC. And we can get so comfortable. We're not home. We're in a battle zone. And there are lives that are at stake, and eternity is at stake. And we just want to be in the AC. We ought not be too comfortable in this world. It's not our home. Let's take the idols of comfort and security and slay them at the altar and say, I will not bow down to those. I'll bow down to the true king who has saved me and where my citizenship lies in so our lives are to look different. They should look different because of Christ, His Spirit in us. We tell people the good news intentionally, building relationships and sharing the gospel because we are citizens of heaven. 
Do you want to be an effective ambassador? Do you want to be a good ambassador for Christ? Remember this. Dwell on this. You are not home. You are a citizen of heaven. Focus on this every day as you read and as you pray, as you meditate on Christ and spend time drawing near to him, drawing near to the throne of grace. Remember that you are a citizen of heaven and this is your identity. Second truth. Now, the next three are in the same one verse, so it won't be a two-hour sermon, I promise. Second truth that we see here is you must know and believe that you are chosen by the Father. We must know and believe that we are chosen by the Father. It says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So again, emphasizing God's sovereignty. He says foreknowledge describes just knowing beforehand how God is sovereign. He is the sovereign. He is king and in complete control. From eternity past, he knew who would belong to him, who would be gathered with his people. And so whenever you read about knowledge, about foreknowledge, about knowing, because that's the root here is knowing. When you read about God knowing people, it's not a casual, oh, I know that person. No, 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 no. With God, knowing someone has to do with covenant relationship. It has to do with a committed love. God loves his people. He has set his affections on you. From the very beginning, God's plan has been to create a people who would reflect his glory as his image bearers. And that he would dwell with them, that would have his presence, and he would put them in a good land in the Garden of Eden, where they would enjoy each other and enjoy him as they oversaw the world, just enjoying his presence forever. That's what God wants. But we're the ones that have rebelled. We're the ones that reject his love. We're the ones that violate the covenant. We're the ones that run away from him. And we're the ones that go to idols, to be filled by idols that we know deep inside aren't going to satisfy. And yet we keep running to them. And we're the ones that don't praise his name because deep inside every one of us wants to be God. And every one of us deep inside wants glory for ourselves and not to display his. And so we're the ones that are evil. And yet, God's story is about the prince from heaven who relentlessly pursues his bride. And his bride keeps going after other lovers. And he keeps pursuing his bride, loving her, sacrificing himself, dying for her. And he will stop at nothing to win her love and to bring her home so that she can enjoy his glorious presence for eternity. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus, that he loves you. You are chosen by the Father. He set his affection on you. And why is this so significant for you today? You are treasured by God. 
He treasures you. This should fill our hearts with such strength. This text here is saturated with God's sovereignty. And God's sovereign over us is meant to overwhelm us and to boggle the mind and to even cause a degree of confusion on how is this possible. And yet, we, we believe it by faith that God is so much bigger than you and me. We need a really big vision of God. And we have it here of God's sovereignty. So we need to stop every day and really remember. Why? Why do we have to remember that you are chosen by the Father? Because we're in a war zone. Because we have an enemy, and he's going to attack you. Our enemy, Satan, is going to attack you, and he's going to tempt you, and he's going to lie to you. He's going to make you believe that that idol will satisfy this time. He wants to slander you, and he wants to tell you that you're worthless, and God can't use you, and you have no eternal value. That's what the enemy will say to you. He'll say, oh, you're so small, you're insignificant. And we need to fight back with the truth. And say, no, it's not true, Satan. God is sovereign and he is good. And I don't deserve it, but Jesus died for me. And I trust him. And I do have eternal value. It may seem small, but it's not because of Christ working through me. You remember these truths and the Spirit will begin to transform you. Focus on this every day. God chose you, loves you. Number three, no one believe that you are sanctified by the Spirit. You must no one believe that you are sanctified by the Spirit. It says in verse 2, this is in the, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, that's a big word. It just means to make holy. And so usually in the, in the Bible, the word sanctification specifically and exclusively refers to this ongoing progressive growth of holiness in the lives of God's people, believers, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this text, it includes that, but he's also including it in this context, talking about regeneration. That's a big word. All it really means is being born again of the Spirit or conversion. And so he's, he's including the act of conversion with being sanctified. And why? Because the Holy Spirit does both. The Spirit is the one that helps be, he makes you born again. So he regenerates you, and then he sanctifies you. He makes you more like Christ. And so we as believers have a holy status, a holy standing, a position before God. So that's what we're called saints in the New Testament. However, this same Holy Spirit also helps us as we focus on Christ and his word. He helps us to grow in actual holiness, actual victory over habitual sin, he helps us to be more like Jesus. Remember who you are. You are sanctified by the Spirit. Don't forget that. Why is it significant to you today? You're set apart for God. The word holy means set apart. And so we're set apart for God. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. Meditate on this. Remember who you are. Remember your identity. I am sanctified by the Spirit, you focus on this, and He'll actually help you be more sanctified. No one believed, number four, no one believed that you are cleansed by the Son. You are cleansed by the Son. It says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Verse 2 here is describing this great salvation that God's given to us. He says, the Father planned, 
He says, the Spirit empowers and the Son accomplished our salvation with His blood sacrifice, it says here. Jesus paid it all. He took our sin, our shame, condemnation upon Him as a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. So we don't have to experience guilt at all. It's paid for. And our salvation here is described being partaken by the triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son, all partaking in our salvation. And it results in obedience, it says in verse 2. For the obedience, so we're, we're saved for the obedience of Christ. We don't obey in order to be saved. We don't obey to earn salvation. We're saved for obedience. We're saved so that we can obey. We have new hearts, which then empower us to have these new desires to obey. The Spirit does this as we focus on Him. Your identity is that you are forgiven. You are being made holy. You are free from sin. And yet, we still battle it. The power of sin is broken, but the presence remains until we're in heaven. And so focusing on these profound truths, the Spirit will then begin to liberate you more of actual sin. And he ends the verse by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That is soothing to the soul. Are you anxious today? Are you stressed out today? Maybe you're really tired. God wants to multiply grace and peace in your life. It was our Savior who said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, peace. Made possible because God has been so gracious to us. No matter what you're going through, how scary or disappointing or painful, God's grace is greater. And you have it because Jesus made a way. Focusing on these truths will give us the spiritual fortitude to continue following our Savior as foreigners, as expats from heaven. Will you please pray with me? Father, we praise you for you truly alone are worthy. We thank you for the joy of knowing you and being able to be known by you and to help others to know you as well. We indeed are travelers in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we thank you that what's next is better. I pray right now for anyone in this room that is considering whether or not they have ever truly trusted in you. May they repent of their sins, cry out to you, completely trust you and experience this great salvation. Father, we want to see more lives change for your glory. You're our heart's desire, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.